Hey, welcome to the New Life Podcast. We're so glad that you could join us. New Life is one family, many churches, and we're located in Brisbane, Coolangatta, Moreton Bay, and Rabina. And we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. I'm excited you're joining us because we are in our vision series. And at New Life, Vision Sunday is not about what we're launching, but rather being reminded of who Jesus has called us to be. Over the next two weeks, we will look at what we believe are four key discipleship priorities that are central to what it means to see more people more like Jesus. When this happens, we believe God will usher in renewal in Australia as we outwork His plan and heart for our church. Welcome to Vision Sunday and enjoy the podcast. It's that vision that wanted me, that led me, I should say, to actually put my hat in the ring and apply for a role three years ago, the likes of which put me through an eight-panel joint nominating committee, six months of discernment, and uh, every other Uniting Church piece of infrastructure you could dare throw your hat at, because of which, actually, they said, yeah, we'd love to call you as our pastor. I couldn't think of a better mission, a better vision, something to get me out of bed to partner with what God's doing here in Brisbane City than the one that we've just heard. And then we get to spend the next two weeks kind of articulating. But Vision Sunday, welcome, friends. What an incredible moment. My, um, my favorite story of vision is the story of Walt Disney, uh, who we know. Because of him, we've got things like Cinderella and the Lion King. But... He lived and he died, uh, I think he died around 1906, uh, 1966, goodness me. And, uh, and his big dream was to start Disney World. And his wife, Mrs. Disney, uh, which sounds like a lie as I say that out loud, but his, his wife, Mrs. Disney, don't know her first name, uh, she knew this dream. And so Walt worked all of his life, but he actually never saw uh, Dis- Disneyland come to fruition. Uh, But after he passed away, they're celebrating the opening of Disneyland in Florida, the first one. And as they're cutting the ribbon, the guy who opens up that ceremony says, I wish Walt was here to see this. And his wife didn't miss a beat. And she said, no, he did see it. That's why it's here. And I think when you look at the church today, when you look around you and you think of the events that we do, we, we come to a building on a Sunday, we leave. We sit around dinner tables midweek and we leave. Or we go to prayer meetings and maybe two out of ten people might pray and we think, is this really, what's happening? What's this all for? And the purpose of Vision Sunday is actually to say, well, here's what we see. Like what you might look at when you see the hustle and bustle and the mundaneity of the laboriousness of church rhythmic life might be really simple, might be really basic, but what should come to your mind should be, and the purpose of Vision Sunday is to answer that question. I think Mike said it really well in the video, and he preached it really well this morning in Rabina, uh, that the the trap with these particular Sundays is to fall into a a hype, uh, what we might call a hype rhythm, whereby we expect someone to get up and share the latest product or project or thing that a, a select few people of us are gonna do, uh, because of which we get excited to partner with that and, uh, and long for that to take place. Um, and that's what can happen in the corporate world. In the corporate world, when these sort of times come along, what happens is a, a select individual, maybe the CEO, or an elite few members of staff will get up and they'll say, we've worked really, really hard and now we've got this incredible plan and here's the product we want to launch and so all you need to do is what? Pre-order. And the purpose of Vision Sunday for the church is is way more different than that. 
Uh, there's a broader we that outworks the vision and mission. It's not an elite few, it's not a select handful of staff, and it's a way better vision that the whole people of God get to participate in so that we might see a move, as Mike so helpfully said, in our time. And here's the vision we've got as a church. We wanna see more people, more like Jesus, by planting and leading thriving local churches. And we've defined thriving just by looking at the life of Jesus. And we've said four things. We wanna gather the lost, we wanna glue in community, we wanna grow as disciples, and we wanna go on mission. We think these four priorities are not just something in individual experiences, there's something that a whole church, could you imagine a whole church gathering their lives around? And so I get the joy of just unpacking the scriptures for us this afternoon, and we're gonna look at the first two priorities. We wanna gather the lost this afternoon, and we wanna glue in community. The way we're gonna do that is we've got gifts for each of you on your seats. It's not a car, it's a little printout. And those printouts articulate our full priorities as a church, and here's the question we're asking. What would it look like for these priorities, as clear as they are, yet as empowering as this card makes it to be, what would it look like if there was a whole people of God that articulated answers to each of those questions? To gather the lost this year, I will. What would that look like? To glue in community this year, I will. And so to give us some handles or spark our imaginations to answer those questions for ourselves individually and corporately, we're gonna create space for us just to write and ask the Holy Spirit as we're gathered here as his people on a Sunday, what is it God you'd have me do this year? Who is it you'd ask me to become? What thing at church or at my dinner table, in my workplace or in my sphere of influence would you encourage me by your spirit to do so that I would see more people more like Jesus, not just as I gather on a Sunday, but midweek through my family, through my friendship circles, all that kind of stuff. What would it look like? And to unpack gathering lost, I just wanna open Romans chapter 10, verse nine to 14. You'll see the text on the screen behind me but my hope was to actually catch our vision and mission in God's vision and mission and just to pull out a few things for us to discover. So Romans 10, verse nine, all the way through to 14, 15, sorry. It says this, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that... Right now, we articulate something, not that's on the periphery of your heart for your church, but actually so central, Lord. Lord, we're talking about Jesus' heart right now to seek and save the lost. We identify as those people, Lord. We were lost and now we're found. We were blind and now we see. And Father, as we step into your story and sit under your scriptures, help us see what you want us to see. Help us be the church you want us to be. We pray that in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I'm going to pull two things out of this text this afternoon, friends. And as I do, I'm speaking to this larger priority. We want to see the lost gathered here at New Life Brisbane. We want to see the dead come to life here at New Life Brisbane. We want to see the blind be given sight so they might see the God who made them for himself and step back into that life-changing, world-transforming relationship. And so number one, I want us to see that salvation is available to anyone. The context of this passage, it's probably Paul's most mature writing. What do I mean by that? I mean, many scholars think he's writing towards the end of his life, and he's writing to a collection of house churches in cosmopolitan Rome, made up not just of Jews who've come to faith, but of pagans and non-Jews or Gentiles who've come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a mixed bag of people to whom he's writing. You'll have stay-at-home mums, you'll have the Roman elite, you'll have the guard and the garrison, you'll have Jews who are still asking questions about how their Old Testament religion gets funneled through the work and way of Jesus. You'll have uh, dads and you'll have lawyers, you'll have historians and you'll have people who don't know how to read and Paul is writing this letter to them to be read out in the public gathering of God's local people and it's his most mature thought. In this text, in this letter, one of the questions that his recipients are asking is simply this, how do I take the faith I've got in Jesus Christ and make sense of it given my Jewish identity? In other words, they're asking questions about what are the markers of God's saved people? Now in the Old Testament, the markers of God's saved people would be three main things. Uh, reading Torah, four main things really. Reading Torah, the law, first five books of the Old Testament. Circumcision, eating kosher foods, and Sabbath. And so when Jesus rocks up on the scene and claims to fulfill the law in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and then at the same time exceed the law by inviting people to respond to him in faith, not works, here's what that means. Does the law I received as an Old Testament Jew mean anything anymore? Now the Jewish people, they were in on God's salvation. They were God's elect people. And the idea for them to understand if they were in or out would simply be this, to be in on God's salvation, to be counted as one of God's people, to receive the salvation God has made available. You've just got to be circumcised. You've just got to keep Sabbath. You've just got to maintain the dietary laws. You've got to be a Jew. And Paul responds to that, what you might call exclusivism, with this unsettling, world-changing, life-transforming challenge. Verse 9, chapter 10, I'll read it again. It says these words. If you declare with your mouth, this is in response to Jewish exclusivism. I'm in on God's salvation if I can claim that I am a descendant of Abraham. Paul would say, oh, I think you might need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's Paul doing? Well, here's what Paul's doing. He's taking the exclusivism of the Jews, which says to qualify for salvation, you need to do these four things. 
And he's saying God is way more inclusive than you ever could have imagined. He's completely emptied the list of checkpoints and put instead one thing in place. What is it? Declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Confess with your heart that he is the king and he will save you. What's he do? He takes the exclusivism of the Jews and says God is way more gracious, way more kind, way more inviting than you ever could have imagined. That in other words, salvation is available to all. Stop keeping it for yourself. Stop putting obstacles and hurdles for people to jump through so that they might be counted as God's people saved by grace through faith. Paul takes the exclusivism of his day and says God's way more inclusive than you could have imagined. I think we've got the inverse problem in our day. Um, Many of you will know that part of my previous role, I've spent time answering objections people had to the Christian faith. I loved it. I really did. And one of the objections that would so often come up would be, oh, I can't believe in a God who claims to be the only way. Christianity is so exclusive. Surely all roads lead to Rome. And surely we can believe whatever we want and God just judges us on the sincerity of our belief, not the content of our belief. And this stuff gets outworked in a whole host of places, organizations, universities, schools. And so today, to be someone who follows Jesus, it actually is really easy to be pinned to someone who's quite exclusive, quite arrogant, and quite bigoted. That in other words, the the problem of our culture today is not that they're exclusive and we're inclusive, it's actually the opposite. Our our culture would seem to be inclusive of all and, and Christians might be themselves exclusive. But here's what I've discovered about inclusion. One, everyone needs to exclude someone in the worldview that they've got. What do I mean? Well, let's say it's a policy in your workplace that you want to champion inclusion because of which what you must do is not bring your worldview, your thinking, your ideas to the water cooler. Why? Well, because if someone believes this and someone believes that, then we want to ensure that there's harmony and peace and no disagreement. So check your worldview at the door of the university or check your belief system at the door of the organization or check your framework for life at the door of your workplace. What's the, what's the point? The point is that to champion inclusion necessarily excludes the exclusivists. Do you see that? That we can believe the myth in our contemporary culture that to champion inclusion means that we're not excluding anyone. Not true. To champion inclusion necessarily means that if I believe something particular about reality, I need to just keep that in my back pocket. I can't share that. In other words, the notion that we can be an inclusive society is just a myth. That in other words, bottom line, long story short, big picture small, we're all exclusivists. Which means, what kind of inclusion does your exclusive claim invite? And this is why I think the Christian story is really beautiful. It's the most inclusive, exclusive claim there is. It's the most inclusive, exclusive claim there is. See, here's what it says. It says if you want to qualify for salvation, you want to get in on God's people, you want to be part of what God's doing, here's what doesn't qualify you. Your status, your ethnicity, your background, your family, your community, your race, your gender, not your job, not your suburb, not anything, nothing. Nothing should exclude you from coming to Jesus. Why? 
because Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus is the way to God and he's the way to human life. He showed us the way we should approach God. He showed us the way we should live our lives. He is God in the flesh, everything we need to know about him, but he's also the perfect human, everything we need to know about our lives. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserved. He was raised to new life as the ultimate vindication of his person and his work. Why? So we could come to God full access, free by grace through faith, not because of works, not because of law, not because we kept the Old Testament Jewish dietary laws, not because we figured out how to live our best lives here on earth. Why? Because one writer said it, in fact, the famous preaching evangelist Billy Graham said it like this, because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's the Christian story. Salvation is available to all. One hymn writer summarized Graham's words like this, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Anyone may come there for there is no cost. Rich man, poor man, bonded or free. The ground was leveled that day at Calvary. Salvation is available to anyone. That's point one. You ready for point two? You are God's distribution plan. You are God's distribution plan. I was going for a run with a guy in our community. He's an entrepreneur. Highly inspirational as a human. This person thinks of ideas. He's innovative. He deploys products like there's nobody's business. He was telling me about something he was developing recently. And I remember thinking, it is an incredible product. I can't wait to see you make a million dollars with that. And tithe. I'm kidding. <laughs> and I was like, what would stop you from, like what would stop this thing from actually making a difference and getting into the hands of people? Now, picture this. Innovative product. And in our current Australian cultural climate, big need for what he was talking to me about. I won't disclose it, but like, this thing's going to hit the ground. It's going to be awesome. And he came up with something that just blew my mind. He's like, distribution. The biggest issue companies face is not the innovation of their products, not the sexiness of their slogans, not the power of their vision. It's distribution. It's not, it's not, that, not that sexy, is it? It's like, oh, you've got to get it into the hands of people. There was a business writer. His name was Tom Peters. He put it like this. He said, uh, leaders win through logistics. How boring. Vision, sure. Strategy, yes. But when you go to war, you need to have both toilet paper and bullets at the right place, at the right time. What's he saying? He's saying you can have the best product available, the most incredible thing that would have the most available market, but unless you've got a means by which to get it into the hands of people, it is for nothing. And Paul makes the exact same argument right here. Paul works back from this vision, saved people. Those who are lost, becoming found. Those who are blind, being given sight. Those who are, I can't remember the other one, but it's there in my head, it's probably in your minds too. Blind see, found, lost, dead to life. But that means nothing if it can't get into the minds, the hearts, the hands, the bodies of people. And so what does Paul do? Well, he works back in sort of this like crescendo. Paul's making an argument and he's asking us to sit under the weight of his persuasion as the brilliant rhetorician that he is, as the incredible thinker that he is, as the wonderfully trained Pharisee, elite Jewish religious figure that he is. He's giving us an argument. Listen to his argument. He says it like this. He says, how then? Now just imagine, imagine this is like a maths equation. Paul would honestly ask us as, as the this church that follows Jesus, how? Like how? How then can they, non-Jews, people who don't know God, non-Christians, how can they call on the one they've not believed in? 
Like, is that, how is that, how is that possible? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? Do you see his logic there? It's impenetrable. Try and argue with that, friends. But before it's a commission, it's the vision. What? How can our friends that don't know Jesus believe in a message they've not even had the chance to hear? How can our family members that don't know the life-transforming love of God, how can they experience it if, like, what? You're God's plan A. You, me, we. We're God's plan A to gather the lost in the world, which means the world's greatest problem, if you go with Paul's logic, the world's greatest problem is, is not that our workplaces are secular. It's not that our universities legislate policies that might hinder our ability to speak freely. It, the world's greatest problem, at least in terms of God's heart to gather the lost, is Christians keeping Christ to themselves. That's it. Which is why I'm astounded and also ashamed of my own heart sometimes that evangelism has become a bit of a dirty word in our contemporary Christian culture. I love what D.L. Moody said in response to people thinking that some of the ways that some of the revivalists did evangelism was like not as nice or something. He, he said it like this. He says, it's clear that you don't like my way of doing evangelism. You raise some good points. Frankly, I sometimes do not like my way of doing evangelism, but I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. And I read that and I was like, fair enough. Like fair enough, dead brother from the 18th century. That's fine. In 2019, Barna released some stats um, and they surveyed millennials all the way through to boomers and they asked them a series of questions and some of the stats that came through, this is based in America, but I wonder how much of it might apply to us and I think all of us would have anecdotal evidence that this could be true, or some of us, myself included. They, they said, do you agree with this statement? Part of my faith means being a witness for Jesus. From boomers to millennials, 96% agreed on average. Another statement, the best thing that could ever happen to someone is that they meet Jesus. From boomers to millennials, 95% of people agree. But here's the interesting thing. One of the statements was this. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith with hopes that they might one day share the same faith. 20% of millennials agreed with that. Sorry, boomers agreed with that. And 47% of millennials agreed with that. That in other words, if you're a millennial, it's entirely possible that 50% of us think that it's wrong to share our faith in a way that would hope that those with whom we share don't want to share the faith that we have. Now, never mind that there's a disconnect between evangelism and sharing our faith. The survey is indicting. Not because it should heap shame on us. It should show us the disconnect with Paul's logic and the vocation and mission of the church. I'll finish with this story and and invite us just to reflect for a second, but um, just think about this with me. One of my, at the organization I used to work for, uh, we were sitting around a table once and we were asking, what's the hardest objection you've ever had to respond to? We'd like go into high schools and universities and boardrooms and like throw us your hard questions and I actually really loved it, just what that's worth. But he said, I was sitting with my friend in Ireland, this guy's named Gareth, sitting with my friend in Ireland and he said, and I'll just try and just pretend I'm speaking as my friend, as, my, as Gareth's friend here. 
So the hardest objection I've ever had to hear, Gareth said, was, was when my friend said to me these words. If Christians believe that the decisions we make in this life affect our eternity, with Christ, without Christ. Now we can get detailed on what we think judgment looks like, we can get nuanced on what we think hell looks like. I don't give a rip, but what's clear in terms of the creeds, in terms of the New Testament, eternity without Christ. Very clear. He's just like, if Christians believe that decision we make in this life has eternal ramifications, I really struggle to trust a body of people that haven't been spending more time trying to tell me about it. I really struggle to trust a body of people that haven't been going to extreme lengths to get this news into my ears, through my ears, into my mind, through my mind, into my heart, so I might be counted as one of God's people, receiving the salvation, not because of my merit, not because of my performance, not because of my background, my esteem, my pedigree, but because I heard the good news of Jesus Christ and said, yep, that was for me. What Christ did on the cross was for me. Why do I say all this? I say all this because our vision as a church is to gather the lost. Like we wanna see our friends that don't know Jesus, our families that don't know Jesus, our colleagues that don't know Jesus. Not one day maybe think, oh, they're a Christian, maybe they think Jesus is Lord. But through our intentionality, our time, our efforts, our purpose, hear the good news of Jesus, see it demonstrated and respond by saying, yeah, I think Jesus is Lord too. And so here's the invitation just for this next moment. We do a host of things as a church to make this possible. Let's call it infrastructure. We run Alpha. It's coming up in two weeks' time. We do Red Frogs. A bunch of our YAs served this morning at Raymond, being the hands and feet and hopefully eventually the mouthpiece of Jesus to questions they ask to which his goodness is the answer. We do a number of things as a church and the invitation for each of us is just to say, is there something my church is doing that I can partner with? Or is there something the Holy Spirit's putting on my heart that I would individually do? What could it look like? Maybe you don't want to do Alpha this term. Maybe you just want to open up your dinner table more intentionally. Go for it. We're going to let the band just play over us for the next few moments. And on your seats, you'll see some cards. And let me go stronger than invitation. Imagine if each of us wrote down, to gather the lost this year, I will. And fill that in. Imagine what God might do. So as the band plays over us, this is our gift to you, and it's also our ask of you as a church. Let's let this not just be a vision. What's God putting on your heart? So we'll stay seated, and I encourage each of us just to write down your answer, inspired by the Spirit, to what you might do to partner with this priority in our church this year. You are God's plan A. He wants to distribute His message in and through you to to gather the lost this year. What, what is it that we might do? I might do the same right now myself. So Father, we, we thank you for this vision. Not because it's snazzy, not because it's punchy, but because Father, we see evidence in your word that this is what you wanna do. Would we see evidence in our lives, God, that this is indeed what you're doing? We love you, Lord. We love the gospel. And Father, as we continue just to sit as your people, we pray. Speak to us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Amen. Friends, if you're comfortable, just take a moment, if, if you're comfortable, and just share maybe what God put on your heart just to the person next to you. Uh, why don't we just take a few moments just to let what God deposited started speaking and just to enact the sense that we actually are the community that are gluing together right now. So just take a moment and just share. What is it God put on your heart? We're going to read from the scriptures one more time, which you can't do enough in church. So why don't you just join me here again as we read from God's Word. Romans 12, verse 4 and onward says this, for just as, as, for just as, goodness me, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. You can just feel the crescendo here. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. I want us to see three things really briefly and think of these more as little montages we just pull out as we prepare our hearts to worship and respond. I think we see in this text, number one, that we, what we are, what we are. Uh, I think in the modern world, it's the difficulty with church is that we can all bring our own expectations around what church is. Um, particularly as a city center church where most of us, in fact, a number of us, can come from previous church communities. Like not all of us met Jesus here in this space, even though we pray that that would continue to increase in our time. Many of us come from other churches. Um, and when we come from another community or another place, or even we just absorb the cultural ether that we're part of, regardless of whether we come from another church, there's different ways we can sort of imagine what this is as we gather. And one of the ways I would sort of narrate what's possible, even in my own life, as I've thought through what it means to be a follower of Jesus with a particular church community, um, some of the ways I've brought my expectations to church would, would sort of be like this. I remember when I was younger, I thought church was sort of like personal fire insurance. Anyone remember, know what I'm talking about there? Go to church, Easter and Christmas, just in case. You know what I mean? Just in case there's a big guy in the sky when I die, I get to say I went to church. And... But the problem with this is it sort of makes the people with whom we gather sort of dispensable. Like before I met Jesus and I, I thought church was sort of like fire insurance, it, it made me think of the institution before of the people that I'd sit in the pews with. And that's an incredibly inadequate view of what the church is. Another way you could sort of think about church and expect something from church is sort of like church is a consumer experience. And this one's particularly modern, especially in the individual West. Uh, I come to church to receive teaching, to be fed. And there's something true and good about that. We unfold the scriptures, we sing to God praise that's true and washes over us and forms us in a way that's mysterious and good and right. But if church is just a consumer experience, the problem with this is it makes me the center of everything and it makes community really, really difficult. 
Another way to think of the church, and I think this comes out on Vision Sunday, actually, is the church is like a corporate company in which I'm a shareholder. You know what I mean? Like we're all invested in this. We're all going the same place. We've all got the same horizon at the end of the sky that we're all working towards. And the problem with this is it values people in as much as they're a means to an end, not an end in themselves. So we start thinking, oh, they're not really, not really pulling their weight. You know what I mean? They're not on a team. Why aren't they helping? And the expectations we bring to what church is need to lovingly and humbly just be brought before the scriptures. And I think what Paul gives us here is a beautiful picture that's very different. Paul is going to argue that the church is one body in which we are all indispensable members. We are one body. What we are, we are one body. He would say this, verse 4 and 5, for just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we though many form one body. I mentioned it before, but Paul in the book of Romans, his most mature writing, very theologically astute, helpfully systematic, he's writing to multicultural, mixing pot, cosmopolitan Rome. And so you can imagine these house churches dotted around the city. You've got the intellectual, the non-intellectual. You've got the slave, you've got the free. You've got men, you've got women. You've got young, you've got old. And when you've got that kind of mixing pot, here's what's going to happen. Squabbles. People are going to get ticked off at one another. Oh, they turned up late again. Or they didn't bring the bread for communion again. Or insert the rest here. Squabbles come up the more we make ourselves proximate to one another. Little arguments. And here's what Paul doesn't do. Paul doesn't address their behavior first. Have you ever thought that's like really fascinating? To a context within which it would have been very easy for squabbles, arguments, petty disagreements, sin misbehavior to come up. If I was writing a letter, I'd be like, here's the top 10 things you're doing wrong. Here's a crash course to in, you know, inculcate this habit in your life. Enjoy. Paul doesn't address their behavior first. He addresses their thinking. You've got obstacles to your relationship. That's okay. You've got hurdles in your friendships. That's fine. We'll talk about that. It's going to be a lot easier if you picture this. You're one body. You're unified. You are one entity. In fact, if you belong to Jesus Christ, the end of verse 15, which I didn't read before, says this, you belong to each other. Now, I don't know about you, but I only discover how indispensable the parts of my body are when I hurt them. I remember it was um, Easter Friday last year and I was prepping the communion bread with gloves on, then I cut my finger, and I couldn't finish the job, and Zoe, bless her, came and finished the job for me, all because I had a little cut on the end of my index finger, couldn't finish the job, couldn't make it happen, we were nearly without bread for communion, Easter Friday, that would have been a travesty, but I didn't, you know what I mean, like when you, just the smallest thing, you only realize how indispensable each of your body parts are when you injure one of them, now here's what it'd be tempting to do, it'd be tempting to think, that Paul gives us the image of a body here to license us to start thinking through, now what body part is dispensable? You know what I mean? Like Paul, that person's a pinky. You know what I'm saying? That person, that person is like the fingernail on the end of my toe. Right? Like this happens. Petty squabbles, petty disagreements, arguments. 
They come up all the time in church. Some of us have relationships. I'm married. It happens. Like things happen that you need to deal with. And it'd be so easy to think that Paul uses the image of a body to license us to think through. Now what? Who's the pinky here? Like who's the, who's the skin on the end of my heel? But Paul doesn't give us the analogy of a body to think through what might be dispensable. He gives us the analogy of a body to give us a picture of health that we might cultivate. Do you see that? That's the purpose of the body. He, he, he holds the, the unified thing before us. He doesn't say, you're a pinky, you're a toe, just think through whether you can make this work and if you've got utilitarian function, you can exercise your mechanics as a body. No, you are one, you are a body. Which means, here's the question he begs us to ask. Imagine a people who valued one another not for their utility, but for themselves. Imagine this sense that we are one, not because we all look the same, dress the same, act the same, speak the same, wear the same shoes. Imagine it's just because we are what the Bible tells us we are. We are one body. It's who we are. In other words, he takes their misbehavior and addresses not it first, but what comes to mind when they think about what they are. You are one body. And it's like, well, Paul, it's really hard to get on with this person. He's like, that's not up for debate. Make it work. Like, oh, Paul, I haven't found my people, the people that I'd be most hospitable to, the people that sort of are like me. Paul's like, that doesn't matter. Why? Paul would say, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you belong to a local body. It's not up for question. The Bible doesn't have vocabulary that makes sense of this sense that, huh, they're really ticking me off. Maybe I should think about going to another place. Or now, what that can't justify, just to be clear, is abuse, spiritual abuse or undealt with sin. Just can't, it, it can't justify that. In fact, that's what most of Paul's letters are kind of about. Work it out, but work it out because you are one body. Um, I love it. There's a quote from, no, I'll skip it. Um, one body operating at health is a beautiful thing. Uh, and here's the, here's the invitation I'd give us as a church. Everything we do at, at church is an invitation to cultivate that kind of oneness as a community. Like, think about this, Sunday gatherings, they could be a come and go experience. They could be the kind of thing we just drop in, peace out. But one of the things I love about our church in New Life Brisbane is, like, I have to turn the lights off at the end of the night because people are sitting there connecting with one another. Like, it's actually the coolest thing. Or I love that I get reports from our small group leaders that are sharing, hey, this person, it was their first week at small group, and I didn't really do much intentionally, but the way that the group that I lead loved on that individual, it was otherworldly. They tasted something that was incredibly beautiful. Why? Because we agree with Paul. We are one body, and we are to cultivate health and vitality as that body. So this is what we are. How do we act? Romans 12 verse 9 says this, love must be sincere. Now, you go to the original Greek it's not a verb there. It actually just says sincere love. Um, in other words, Paul writes this argument. He's addressing his reader and he paints this picture and he says, think of yourselves as one body. No matter what goes on, no matter what gets in your way, no matter what relational obstacles come up, think of yourselves as one body. And then he says, P.S., sincere love. And the rest of that little montage there, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, Show hospitality, as anticlimactic as that last word is. It's just like a little montage whereby Paul sort of puts flesh on this ultimate vision that we would be a people who show sincere love. Now, what makes sense of this to me is contrasting this. 
And the contrast for sincere love would be this, fake love, counterfeit. When I was like 14 years old, I went to Thailand. And uh, how many of us have been to Thailand or an East Asian country, you're walking down the street and uh, some guy is selling fake DVDs. Anyone have this experience? Yeah. When you're a kid, you're like, this is a candy store for me. There's Jimmy Neutron. It's not even out in cinemas yet, but I'm going to buy that thing and I'm going to watch it. But what happens when you buy the fake DVD, the pirated DVD? You take it home, you put it in the DVD player, and what you thought would be this beautiful, sneak peek, exclusive editor's take on Jimmy Neutron ends up being some guy that walked into the back of a cinema with a JVC camera and filmed the movie, put it on a DVD, and then printed the covers from some like Google image. And what's the takeaway? The takeaway is that when you think you're getting the real deal but it's counterfeit, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. You can't rely upon it. This happens in a whole host of areas in life. Think of falsified documents. Think of fake news. Think of imitation leather. Has anyone thought about this recently? Back in the day, you used to buy leather shoes. And then they started selling synthetic leather. But now, given cultural ways, we buy vegan leather. And my question is, is it just synthetic leather repackaged? I don't know. You know but bottom line, it's, it's fake leather. You know what I'm talking about. But here's the point. Here's the takeaway with counterfeit goods. They aren't as workable, nowhere near as attractive. They feel wrong. They don't last. You can't bake on it. The news could be false. The quality isn't as nice. The durability isn't as good. Why? It's fake. That's the takeaway. And Paul would say here, what you need is authentic love. What does that mean? In the great fire of Britain, uh, a whole host of the city burnt down and an architect was commissioned to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral. Finished in 1701, his name was Christopher Wren. Now most buildings, when they're built, always have a plaque that detail who built it, sort of like an autograph. And this is actually where the word autograph comes from. Authentic, autos, auto, autograph, you get the point. And so you'd walk into St. Paul's Cathedral in London and you'd look for the plaque and it's not there. And you ask the tour guide, how do I know who built this? There's no autograph. And the tour guide would so easily say, this building is Christopher Wren's autograph. You know this is authentic to Christopher Wren because what it is in itself. In other words, for something to be authentic, you need to be able to trace the author in it. So I should be able to see through uh, Lavier Picasso. I should be able to see through the Brandenburg concertos, Sebastian Bach. I should be able to see Christopher Wren in St. Paul's Cathedral, and here's Paul's point when he looks at the church. We should be able to see Jesus Christ. How? Love. That's it. Love. We know what we are. We know how to act. What makes the difference? The last little piece. And as I begin to share, why don't you just start asking the Holy Spirit, what are you asking me to do this year? How are you asking me to own this vision? Paul would say this, verse 9 through to 13, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, 
patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now, this is a list of virtues. And this is a common writing practice in the ancient Greco-Roman world. You give an ethical montage, a sort of a quick flyaway to capture what the title of that entire thing was. Love must be sincere. It could look like this, 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 and this. In other words, therefore, it's not an exhaustive list. It's just representative of the kind of life. And here's what I think this list is. I think it's just a bunch of really small things. You know what I mean? Love must be sincere. Let the authenticity of who Jesus Christ is be visible through how you act with one another. How? Set the table. Like that fire you've got in your bones as you think about your passion for Jesus, just gather kindling around it. Like stoke it. Don't let it go out. Let the passion burn in you. Let it grow up. These are just small little things. And I think our objection to Paul in this moment would just be, Paul, it's a bit basic. Like it's a bit basic. And Paul would say, yeah, this is Gospel 101. It's basic, not, not because it's easy, but because it's simple. And because it's simple, it's actually really hard. It's the little things, especially in community, that make the biggest difference. Now, the illustration I've got for this is, I think what Warren Buffett called the miracle of compounding interest. Any Barefoot Investor fans out there? A couple of us. If you had $100,000, getting 8% return over 40 years. You start at 20 years old and at 60, age of retirement, you'd have $420,000 sitting in your account. 8%, it's nice. Compounding interest is different. Compounding interest takes the principal, 100,000, and then takes, whenever you earn interest, so for the next year, 8%, that'd be $8,000. It adds that to the original principal and then calculates the interest you earn after that second year. So on the first year, $100,000, 8%, $108,000. But on the second year, your, your interest is calculated not based on the original 100, but based on the secondary 108,000. What's the point? It's a bunch of stuff I don't really know what I'm talking about, but takeaway is this. After 40 years, not with simple interest, but compounding interest, you'd have 2 million, $172,452 sitting in your bank account. Don't quote me on the maths. What's the point? One small, simple change in the interest you accrue in your account. Now, if anyone knows that bank account, like that company that gives that rate, that'd be really helpful for all of us, I think. It's the little things that make the biggest difference. I think it's easy in church to let small group come along on a Wednesday and just think, oh, I'm just a bit tired. I've done it, I do it. But Paul would hold before us an image of a healthy body and he'd say, here's what you are. Here's how to act. Now take the small things like hospitality. Take the small things like fervent prayer. Take the small things like showing up for one another checking in with one another, making the call to the person who didn't rock up at church. Take the small things and over time, what's the miracle of compounding interest as this body takes on flesh? That's the invitation. Why? Well, it's really simple. We want to glue in community. 
We don't want church to be fire insurance where people aren't valued and not even known. We just come and slip away. We don't want church to be a consumer product where it's just the elite few who deliver a bunch of products or things or experiences or programs that we've developed that we think we're really proud of. We are really proud of the things we get to do as a church, just what it's worth. We don't want church just to be this like army of people where we value people, not because of who they are, but by what they can do. We just want to be a body. We want to be a family. We want to be a family because of which the lost can be found. We want to be a family because of which we're valued not by what we do, but just because of who we are. We want to be a family that if you're a stranger and you walk in, you are not safe from some random person coming up to you and saying, hi, welcome. It's really good you're here. And if we did that, not only would we, every individual in this place, feel glued to this community. Everyone who walks into this place, everyone who steps foot at our dinner table at Small Group, everyone who joins us in this mission here in the heart of Brisbane City, where it'd just be so easy to say, it's actually too hard. We'd know community. We'd know what it is to be a body. And so why don't you, why don't we just take this moment and articulate it? God, what is it you'd have me do this year? that I might glue to community and that I might help others do the same as you use me as your hands and your feet in the home to which you've called me. we we'll take a few minutes and the band will invite us to stand or respond in prayer. But just take these next three minutes and just write. Let the Holy Spirit inspire your heart as you get explicit about what he'd have you do as you join us in this mission. Thanks again for listening to the New Life podcast. If that stirred something within you and you'd like prayer, or maybe you'd like to join us in the mission of seeing more people more like Jesus, you can contact us through our website, church.nu, or you can reach out through our Instagram or Facebook pages. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.